This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Good evening and welcome to Navarra Live. I'm your host, Ash Sarka, and joining me tonight is Helena, aka No Justice MTG, on YouTube and Twitch. Helena, what's wrong with you? Are you not on annual leave yet? Um, I mean, I did have really bad food poisoning yesterday, so I've not been able to get as much of the content I would have liked to have put out as otherwise, but even so, feeling much better today. Uh, I'm afraid we actually have some quite harrowing stories for you tonight because coming up we'll be discussing the tragic murder of Brianna Jai after two teenagers responsible have been convicted. More on the junior doctor's dispute with the health secretary making a mess of the morning media around and a look at a tech company that was disrupted by activists this morning over their support for Israel's war on Gaza. Stay tuned for all of that. Let's go to our first story. Military service is compulsory for most Israelis when they turn 18. Israeli men must serve 32 months and Israeli women 24 months alongside regular troops in the IDF. And even after they're demobilised, they can be called up as reservists up until the age of 40. Historically, the number of Israelis who refuse the draft on the grounds of conscience are very, very low. But perhaps that's beginning to change. I'm joined now from Tel Aviv by 18-year-old Tal Mitnick, who is refusing to serve in the IDF and whose enlistment date is meant to be next week. Tal, thank you for joining me. What led you to the decision to refuse national service? Um, What led me was uh, the realization that it's not just a couple soldiers uh, that are bad soldiers or that enact uh, violent occupation on Palestinians. But it's actually a whole system, system of violence, um, of pulling people into the army and making them work for the occupation and for oppressing Palestinians. So what's actually going to happen on your enlistment date? Can you talk me through it? My enlistment date is next week on Tuesday, and I will come and declare that I'm not serving. And then I will go up um, um, on trial in front of a military judge, which is usually a general. Um, and he will sentence me to uh, time in military jail, prison. You've been an activist with Youth Against Dictatorship and in September of this year signed a letter along with over 280 people saying that you're going to refuse the draft. Um, there has been huge protests against Netanyahu over the last year. How prevalent is the anti-occupation view that you guys are taking in that wider movement? Is it relatively well represented or are you guys quite a minority? Um, so the wider protests for the judici- against the judicial reform, sorry, um, are uh, they, they don't really talk about the occupation. But in our anti-occupation block, we, we choose to mention the occupation and actually make it the, the center of attention because we believe that this uh, judicial coup uh, was orchestrated to um, deepen the occupation and to give more power to the settlers. And towards the end of these protests, more and more people were realizing it. More and more people were connecting the dots, were realizing that the people that are moving forward, this judicial coup, are the settlers, and they want more and more rights to oppress more and more Palestinians. And we were definitely making an impact. We were definitely getting and going into the main protest, and people were hearing our message and uh, also joining the anti-occupation bloc. What have the reactions been like from the wider community, friends, family, teachers, neighbors, when you've told them about your position of refusing the draft on 
ideological grounds? I'm very blessed to live in a place where uh, people actually hear what I have to say. And a lot of my friends um, are serving and right now are in military service. Um, and when I tell them my opinions, because I am their friend, they see the humanity in my positions and they see that my, my only, I only want for there to be good in this place. I want security and I want peace for everyone. And when people get to know me, when people hear this opinion, um, they, um, the, this opinion is very humanistic and very normal. So this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to make more uh, teens, make more young people hear this position that there is an alternative to the massacre that is happening right now in Gaza and to the massacre that Hamas committed on October 7th. There is an alternative in peace of peace um, and nonviolence. I hear what you're saying, that it's a very human and normal opinion. And of course, I agree with you. It's an entirely reasonable, legitimate position to hold. But you use the word normal. And as I understand it, um, conscientious objection is very, very rare in Israeli society. Is there a backlash that happens, a blowback, a sort of project of demonizing individuals such as yourself who refuse the draft? Or is there generally an acceptance of that as a legitimate position, even if people disagree with it? Um, so actually, a common misconception is that all Israeli teens serve when actually only 50% of people who receive draft letters end up uh, serving or finishing uh, service. So the other 50% either don't serve or don't finish service. Um, and when people hear that someone didn't serve, they don't necessarily um, start attacking them. But not serving from a conscientious position, from a political position, is, does get attacked. And a lot of conversations with peers start with, where are you serving or where have you served? Um, and then the first second of this conversation, already there is a divide between us. I want to talk about a particular instance of violence that occurred in the West Bank when IDF soldiers shot and killed a two-year-old Palestinian toddler after about a year nearly of investigation. The IDF admitted culpability for shooting and killing this toddler, but the officer involved only got a reprimand. What is the awareness like amongst Israelis of these kinds of human rights abuses and the realities of the violence that Palestinians have to live under every day? Is it a widespread acknowledgement of what goes on or is it not really reported, not really spoken about? Right after these situations happen, and these situations happen all the time, for example, with Shirin Abu Akhle for you a few years ago, um, the first um, IDF uh, message is um, that there were Palestinian terrorists that committed this. And then a couple of weeks later, they walk back and say, okay, it was us, but there were terrorists uh, behind them. And then a couple months later, in a small story that no one sees, they actually admit to murdering or killing um, the victim. And yes, the, most people see the first headline that's published two days after the incident and don't, uh, don't even think that the, uh, that the spokesman for the IDF is lying. They, they, the spokesman for the IDF is seen as a, trust, a, a trustworthy source. And no, it doesn't matter what they say a couple months later. What they said right after the incident is the only thing that we get to hear. What do you think living in a, in a society that has national service does? Do you think that makes the culture more broadly militaristic? Does it contribute to a culture of impunity within the military itself? Because if you've got lots of people serving alongside the military, there's a degree of involvement and complicity and perhaps a reluctance 
to call out human rights abuses when they occur. I mean, do you see a relationship between those things? Definitely. I think uh, militarism, militarism in Israel is very entrenched in society and the military is like some a golden goose that you're not allowed to touch. You're allowed to criticize the government. You're allowed to go out for gay rights, for uh, women's rights. Um, but when it comes to criticizing military action against Palestinians or other oppressed communities, this is totally out of the norm. Um, you cannot speak against the military because it's so entrenched in society. Um, like I said, a lot of conversations start with the military. And because most people did serve, um, it's seen as this kind of thing that everyone needs to pass in order to, be of, in order to become an Israeli. Last year, four teenagers were handed down a prison sentence of a year because not only were they conscientious objectors, what the court decided, a military court, was because they'd organized together. It sort of put them beyond the realms of normal conscientious objection. And, you know, it was more like a kind of organized form of disorder. What, what kind of punishment are you expecting after your refusal to enlist next week? There is no governmental policy or military policy to deal with conscientious objectors. Um, so they basically sentence us as much as they want until they give up. They basically sentence us for a week, for example, in the start, and then give me a new enlistment date and try to uh, say that now you can enlist. And then when I refuse again, they give me 20 days and then 30 days and then 30 days until they're done with me. So I have no uh, way of knowing how long it's going to be. In terms of the knowledge that you have, do you know if there are any long-term repercussions that come from refusing to serve along conscientious grounds? And is it something that would be different for perhaps working-class Israelis or Israelis who don't have you know, many international connections? Is it something that plays out differently according to the level of socioeconomic power that you might have? Going out publicly and talking about refusing service bears a huge social cost. Um, I have the privilege to come out publicly. I have a supportive family and supportive friends, um, but a lot of refusers don't have uh, these supportive nets. Um, so that's why I feel like I need to come out publicly. And this is um, something that um, will help. And I need to use my privilege for the good. Yes, it does have a cost and it's mostly a social one. As I've said before, um, it can cost friendships, but this is something that I'm take. I don't, if someone doesn't respect me for my opinions and my beliefs, um, then I do not uh, seek friendship with them. And I suppose my final question is, what do you hope that your refusal to serve in the IDF will achieve? Um, what do you hope it's going to do in terms of the wider peace movement? And how do you hope to change people's minds? I hope to get to as many Israeli youth as possible and tell them that there is another option. Serving is not something that's going to happen forever, and the army um, needs to change for there to be an actual solution in this place. Um, we need to realize that nonviolence is something normal. It's normal to want nonviolence, and it's normal to want a solution here, and that there are 7 million Palestinians here, and we need to acknowledge that fact that they're not going anywhere and live with them. Talmitnik, thank you so much for joining us this evening. A really inspiring interview. I can't imagine being brave enough to face prison at the age of 18 years old. So respect to Tal Mitnick. Let's go to our next story.
This morning, hundreds of health workers picketed the London headquarters of Palantir, a tech company with close links to the CIA, who have endorsed Israel's bombardment of Gaza. Palantir have recently been awarded a £330 million contract with the NHS for data management services. That's despite widespread concerns about privacy and outsourcing in the NHS. And here's an explanation from The Guardian. Palantir has been viewed with suspicion in the UK over its history of rising from the US spy industry and links with the CIA. Thiel, as in Peter Thiel, its founder and chair, who was a notable financial backer of Trump, has claimed that the UK has Stockholm Syndrome when it comes to its affection for the health service. In contrast, Palantir's chief executive, Alex Karp, has said he wished the US had a healthcare system that served the poor and underserved as well as I perceive the British one does. Health workers for a free Palestine blocked the entrance to Palantir's office in protest of both its role in privatisation of the NHS and its connections to the Israeli military. This is from Tribune's reporting of the protest. Jessica, a nurse and member of Health Workers for a Free Palestine, told Tribune, it should be unthinkable for the NHS to do grubby deals with a company which is complicit in and profiting from Israel's systematic destruction of healthcare facilities. According to the United Nations, at least 300 healthcare workers have been killed in Gaza since 7th of October. This is more than the total number of healthcare workers killed across all countries in conflict in any year since 2016. Palantir have been tight-lipped about the precise nature of the services that they offer to Israel. But here's what we do know. This is from Tribune. The company has provided military and surveillance technology to the Israeli government for years, including predictive policing services used as part of the occupation to systematically harass and detain Palestinians. Such predictive systems are used by Israel to analyze the social media posts of Palestinians. In 2010, Israel issued Military Order 1651, which imposes a 10-year sentence on anyone who attempts to influence public opinion in the West Bank in a manner they deem harmful to public order or who publishes words of praise for hostile organizations. For years, the Israeli army has used broad military orders to intimidate and arrest Palestinian human rights activists engaged in non-violent protests. Palantir's racially profiled analytic systems therefore facilitate the unjust arrest of Palestinians. Many have faced long prison sentences for simply posting photos of family members killed or imprisoned by Israeli forces, citing Quranic verses or calling for protests. Evidence suggests that Palantir have been expanding their presence in the country over the past year. And what's more, they've been explicit in their support for the bombardment of Gaza. Here's what they posted on Twitter shortly after the airstrikes began in October. Certain kinds of evil can only be fought with force. Palantir stands with Israel. And in a recent letter to shareholders, Palantir CEO Alex Karp wrote this. We are one of a few companies in the world to stand up and announce our support for Israel, which remains steadfast. Palantir stands with Israel. So what are Palantir all about? In an interview with Fox Business in early November, the co-founder of Palantir, Joe Lonsdale, was asked about Palantir's role as a contractor with Israel. Here's what he said. When we were building Palantir, we actually learned a lot from the Israelis. They're quite good at what they do. And one of my proudest moments was when Israel actually started working with Palantir. And so Palantir helps Israel do a lot of things Mm. too. And, you know, these days... 
there's a lot of new possibilities, Liz, in the defense space. There's a lot of ways you can apply AI to make you know, the Navy work better and, and you know do autonomous vessels there. There's there's ways you can use AI uh, with uh, you know to turn off drones at a great distance with EMP shocks and you, whether you, AI makes the power go, go much farther if you hit hit the emitters all at once. And so you're you're seeing all sorts of really interesting new you know techniques developed for the battlefield. And it's it's scary because the bad guys are starting to use this too. Iran and China are very advanced. Uh, we're trying to make sure the U.S. stays more advanced than our enemies and keeps them scared. And you're, you're seeing a lot of this happen. You're seeing Iran right now test all sorts of places in the region. You hear about their Shahid drones going into Jordan, testing the defenses there. You know, they'd very much like to take out the king there and try to get the get the people to, you know, go on their side instead. And there's just all sorts of really scary things happening back and forth right now. Yeah. And we're, we're trying to keep the good guys armed and, and ahead. Lonsdale doesn't actually say what Palantir learned from the Israelis, but if I had to guess... I'd suggest it might be something about developing technology for the purposes of mass surveillance. An article published earlier this year by Wired told the story of Britta Eder, a defence lawyer based in Hamburg. Eder's work as a lawyer means that her phone contacts are full of people considered by the state to be criminals. Enter Palantir. When Hamburg passed new legislation in 2019 allowing police to use data analytics software built by the CIA-backed company Palantir, Ida feared she could be pulled further into the big data dragnet. A feature of Palantir's Gotham platform allows police to map networks of phone contacts, placing people like Ida, who are connected to alleged criminals but are not criminals themselves, effectively under surveillance. Israel has a particular knack for surveillance technology. This is from Al Jazeera. The Israeli military-industrial complex has turned the occupied Palestinian territory into a testing ground for advanced weaponry and surveillance technology, which it exports worldwide. From powerful tools like the Pegasus software, which was used to hack the phones of high-profile individuals such as Jeff Bezos and Jamal Khashoggi, to selling drones to the European Union to monitor people seeking to cross the Mediterranean, Israel's technology has become a global leader in conflicts around the world. In addition to this, what's really interesting is the way senior Palantir figures position themselves and Palantir's work within a broader political conflict. This is from an earlier section of Joe Lonsdale's interview with Fox Business. Absolutely terrible, the terror tactics they use to attack civilians in order to do this. And Israel's now doing what it has to do in eliminating the bad guys. And you're seeing, you know, in our, in, in our world, you're seeing a lot of volatility around this. You know, there, there was a lot of us who spoke out for Israel's right to defend ourselves. And you saw a lot put, put on lists with our, our names listed as, oh, don't work with this person if you're, if you're on the Hamas side, if, if you're, you know, if you're anti-Israel. And so you're, you're, you are seeing a lot of controversy in our world around it. Mm -hmm. But I think, I think, frankly, you're seeing a lot of solidarity around, uh, you know, there's a lot of people in our world who are pro-U.S. and are pro-Israel's right to defend itself. And, and, and a lot of us are being threatened and a lot of us are, are standing up anyway and speaking out. You see student newspapers in general, the mainstream ones have been conquered by what you have to call the woke left, right? And, you know, this has been a really interesting month because I've had a lot of friends on the, on the left, a lot of friends in general who hadn't been paying attention to the universities who reached out and said, Joe, I now see why you guys are starting a new university to compete with these places. I had no idea they were this broken. I had no idea they'd become this illiberal. Like it's one thing when the students mess it up, there's going to be a lot of crazy, silly students who make mistakes when they're young. And I'm not saying we should forgive them right away, but right. I think, I think you can learn from your mistakes when you're young. What's sure. scary to me is the administrators, is the professors, oh, like you said, exactly. who's trying to blame these kids. You know what he says? He says, colonialists have killed more people than the Holocaust. So you guys talk about the Holocaust, but you should be ashamed because you're colonialists. And 
there's this very strange theory of the oppressors versus the oppressed that tries to lump everything into this kind of neo-Marxist postmodern view of the world. And it's really, it's really screwed up and it's completely conquered and brainwashed our universities. It's, it's a big problem. This might sound just like right-wing culture warrior gobbledygook, neo-Marxist, postmodern, but Lonsdale's fear-mongering about leftists on university campuses chimes with a lot of what Palantir co-founder Peter Thiel has had to say. This is from a profile of Thiel published in The Economist in 2016, just after he endorsed Donald Trump for president. As a student at Stanford University in the late 1980s and early 1990s, he railed against the new academic orthodoxies of multiculturalism and diversity and political correctness, founding a conservative magazine, Stanford Review, and publishing an establishment-baiting book, The Diversity Myth. He even defended a fellow law student, Keith Rabois, who decided to test the limits of free speech on campus by standing outside a teacher's residence and shouting, faggot, faggot, Hope you die of AIDS. So you can see the glaring contradiction at the heart of Palantir's co-founders. Free speech is good when it's someone screaming homophobic slurs, but when it's someone allegedly singling out Jewish students in their class, which, by the way, I think is totally abhorrent, free speech is suddenly bad. And personally, I don't see a massive difference between these two acts. But it makes political sense to treat one as a free speech issue and the other as a hate crime if what you want to do is disempower progressives and build up the influence of the far right. In a 2009 essay written for the Cato Institute, a libertarian think tank, Peter Thiel wrote, quote, I no longer believe that freedom and democracy are compatible. According to Thiel, the rise of statism could be blamed on giving women the right to vote and the growth of welfare recipients. And rather than getting too hung up on stuff like human rights and democratic values, Peter Thiel urges us to consider the idea that, quote, the fate of our world may depend on the effort of a single person who builds or propagates the machinery of freedom that makes the world safe for capitalism. And it's funny how it's always these ultra-wealthy dudes who want us to give autocracy a chance, eh? Helena, there's a massive overlap in this story between trade unions, foreign policy, privatisation, surveillance, the rise of the far right. Do you think that this is why our government wants to ban public bodies from joining the BDS movement? I think what you really have to do is you have to dig deep down into Peter Thiel's personal ideology and the kind of things that he gets involved in. It's filtered down uh, to the people who are currently in high-level positions within Palantir and this kind of this side of the right wing, especially in America, right? Because we've got to remember that Peter Thiel is part of this new right. He'd been funding people like J.D. Vance and Blake Masters in their political campaigns for the Republican Party. Now, of course, what they do want in general is this kind of anti-democratic technocracy that's kind of the Hayek would have advocated for, where any democratic participation therefore undermines the power of the market by giving people something that they are not engaging with via market values, then because it's democratic values. Those are two things that oppose each other in, 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 the, in the economic realm. But I think it's more than this, right? Because one thing that you look at when you look at Peter Thiel's writing is this belief that liberal individualism has failed, or it's succeeded in what everyone, would, everyone said that it would achieve, but it has failed in terms of creating what he would believe a good society that would indeed conform to quote-unquote Western values. And this is where it goes into and slots into the current GOP campaign in the United States with anti-Semitism on campus, it's a, it's a, uh, allegedly, right? Or the 
the undermining of Western values within universities. We even saw in that clip him talking about things like neo-Marxism and postmodernism, which of course are completely uh, opposing ideologies. You cannot be a Marxist or postmodernist, those things don't work together. But what's important is they are trying to get people to undermine the universities in America. This is a specific thing they're trying to do all across the right wing in the United States. Jordan Peterson has been a person who's been into this kind of thing, as well as in schools as well, with the push for school choice legislation underpowering educators within the United States, because they are not specifically conforming to the kind of quote-unquote Western values that Peter Thiel thinks that they should be doing. So, And liberal individualism has allowed this to spread by not uh, by not imposing cultural norms on people or imposing ideological norms on people and letting them have this pluralism within a liberal society. And so by attacking the universities, they are trying to undermine the centres of thought in our country and the centres of discussion, which undermine, again, the kind of power that capitalists would have. Now, you can see this, this bleeds across into exactly what we're seeing in the United Kingdom as well. Rishi Sunak's government deliberately tried to ensure that you can't teach anti-capitalism in schools. Anything You can't say things that are undermining of capitalism. And now we're also seeing the same kind of rhetoric around the anti-Semitism within universities in relation to support generally for the Palestinian people in the same way that Saul Abraham described the pro-Palestine rallies as quote-unquote hate marches, this conflation of support for Palestine with, with anti-Semitism, which of course does exist in quite a lot in current society and is being massively increased in the wake of what's happened within the war in Palestine currently. But whether that's some kind of problem specific to universities remains to be seen. But what it is, is this desire to undermine it, because technocracy doesn't like the universities either. And this fits into the same kind of BDS bans that we're seeing within public bodies. They want to be able to control the narrative. It's a broader consolidation of pro-Western values, quote unquote, as Peter Thiel would call it, and imposing that from the top down in an autocratic fashion, whether it's because they want to undermine democracy more generally, undermine the failures they perceive as liberal individualism. This is coming across in loads of right-wing politics in the States and is bleeding through into the UK as well, which is why we see our current Conservative Party being far more in bed with certain corporations than with capital more generally that we've seen over the last kind of few months or so. And so it's very dangerous to have access to loads of medical records from the NHS, when this is the same company that had all the records of the population that could potentially be impacted by Donald Trump's Muslim ban, which is something I found out when researching the segment today. So it's a not a particularly uh, not encouraging development, although at least we are seeing some pushback in terms of the uh, protests today. I've got a, a question about the protests. So it's health workers for a free Palestine and it seems to follow quite hot in the heels of Workers for a Free Palestine, which was a group of trade unionists who picketed uh, arms companies that manufacture components used by the IF in their operations against the people of Palestine. And I guess I want to ask you, um, do you think that this, I guess, cross between the um, pro-Palestinian movement and the trade union movement, organized labor and something that's normally considered a kind of single issue campaign speaks to a kind of new wave of politicization. Because I can't remember a time where people drew upon their identity as workers in order to participate in an anti-war movement or an anti-imperialist movement in the way that this is happening before. It seems certainly like a new development or perhaps the revival of something which had lain dormant for a bit. 
I mean, it reminds me kind of the reverse of gays and lesbians support the miners. In, so instead of it being a kind of cultural group supporting the striking workers, it's now we're seeing the other way around. We're seeing that kind of be mirrored with workers d- supporting I mean, an internationalist issue. And that's, and I mean, the, the, the RMT, there was a, there was a, the Bob Crow Brigade, I think, went off to fight in Kurdistan to support the Syrian democratic forces against Assad and against ISIS. So there's always been some level of internationalism within our union movement. But the fact that it's kind of broadly being a lot more coordinated recently is certainly showing that after 40 years of neoliberalism, this desire for a collective movement, this desire to see a more kind of collective struggle together amongst loads of different intersecting ways in which people are affected by the the failures of kind of global Western neoliberal capitalism. I think that's something really encouraging. And it's also why, going back to Peter Thiel, him and his close relationship with Elon Musk, it's why these people are, essentially, why Elon Musk said that he had to support the Republicans instead of the Democratic Party, under his claim that the Democratic Party are in control of the unions. And what do rich people hate the most? It's organized labor. And that's why they want to try and essentially draw this, uh, this is why we're seeing this kind of united front between the capitalist class and the trade union movement are opposing each other, not just on their material lines, but also on broader ideological lines outside of just the material interests of of labour versus capital. I mean, I just love the unexamined irony of tech CEO who loves free speech, but also creates a algorithm which identifies Palestinians sharing the wrong kind of social media post. You just, absolute chef's kiss there. Let's move on to our next story. Two 16-year-olds, one boy and one girl, have been found guilty of the brutal murder of Brianna Jai. Brianna was stabbed 28 times in a park in Cheshire in February this year. She was just 16 at the time, while while both the killers were 15. One of the killers had posed as her friend. This was Brianna's mother speaking after the verdict was delivered at Manchester Crown Court. Two 16-year-olds, one boy and one girl, have been found guilty of the brutal murder of Brianna Jai. Brianna was stabbed 28 times in a park in Cheshire this February. She was just 16 at the time, while both killers were 15. One of the killers had posed as her friend. This was Brianna's mother speaking after the verdict was delivered at Manchester Crown Court. Brianna was larger than life. She was funny, witty and fearless. We miss Brianna so much, and our house feels empty without her laughter. To know how scared my usually fearless child must have been when she was alone in that park with someone that she called her friend will haunt me forever. Prior to the trial, I had moments where I felt sorry for the defendants because they had ruined their own lives, as well as ours. But now knowing the true nature and seeing neither display an ounce of remorse for what they have done to Brianna, I have lost all sympathy that I may have previously had for them. And I am glad that they will spend many years in prison and away from society. Though Brianna was murdered by the two teens, she wasn't their first intended victim. Starting in November last year, the two drew up a list of four potential murder victims, all boys. 
In December, Brianna's name was added to the list. Now, Brianna was trans, but the police very quickly ruled out transphobia as a motive for the killing at the time. Detective Chief Superintendent Mike Evans said that Cheshire Police had, quote, no information or intelligence to suggest it was a hate crime. And transphobia did not come up in the trial, with the judge telling jurors to put aside any, quote, uninformed views on Brianna's murder. One reason for that is that the killers first planned to kill one of the boys on their list and only moved on to Brianna after that plan was thwarted. They speculated that killing her would be, quote, easier than killing their original target. Detective Chief Superintendent Mike Evans led the team investigating the murder. In an interview after the verdict was given, he explained why his team ruled transphobia out as a motive. We never built this case around a transgender element. That This was about the murder of a um, young, vulnerable girl. Um, we obviously know that it was that kill list which had five people on it. Brianna was one of them. Brianna was the only person on that list who was transgender. Um, this was about murderous intent for somebody. Um, as I said to you earlier, I think the fact that Brianna was vulnerable through um, a sort of isolation and her anxiousness um, made her more accessible to them. And, and that, I think, tragically is what led to them choosing Brianna. The thought there seems to be that Brianna's vulnerability and anxiety, the very qualities that marked her out as a viable victim for the murderers, were completely disconnected from the fact that she was trans and living in an increasingly transphobic society. But that seems pretty implausible, and it's made even less plausible by the messages the killers sent one another. The girl, who picked Brianna as a possible victim, introduced her to the boy with this message. I'm obsessed over someone I know, but don't have feelings for them. She's called Brianna. I don't know how to explain. Also, she has a dick. Lol. For his part, the boy repeatedly used dehumanizing language to talk about Brianna, describing her as an it, and sent several clearly transphobic and sometimes graphic messages to his accomplice. Both the police and the prosecutors in the case have said that the motive for the murder is, quote, unknown. Deputy Chief Crown Prosecutor Ursula Doyle was asked how unusual that is. It is unusual. Uh, it's not unknown, but it is unusual. Um, and I think in this case, it, it has demonstrated that it was the, the, the thirst to kill that, that drove the defendants rather than a having a particular motive, perhaps, to kill an ind a particular person. Uh, and obviously the, the, the compilation of the uh, list of potential victims um, demonstrates that, that they, they were fundamentally driven by a, des a desire to, to kill and uh, inflict suffering on others. For months before the murder of Brianna, the killers messaged each other about the, way about the ways in which they would kill their victim and how they wanted to keep body parts as trophies. That messaging culminated in a note written by the girl and dated with the day of the attack, meticulously planning Brianna's murder. Part of it reads, Walk down to library bus stop, wait until Brianna gets off bus, then the three of us walk to the linear park. Go to the pipe slash tunnel area, I say a code word to the boy, he stabs her in the back as I stab her in the stomach. That code word was gay. Throughout the trial, the defendants argued that the messaging between them was just a fantasy. Was that true, or had they planned to kill from the beginning? And if it was true, 
Could it have been the selection of Brianna, a particularly vulnerable victim, that led them to turn their fantasies into a horrific reality? This is Doyle on that question. It's hard to be completely certain about whether it, it start the messaging started as a fantasy and, and then became reality or was always reality. Um, certainly the, the message, messaging, con- considering that it came between two very young people, w- was very dark. The content was very dark. Uh, and in fact, terrifying in content. Um, but it, it's very difficult to say whether... It, it was fantasy to start with, and that became reality potentially. But what we can say for definite is that there became a point when a plan was made to kill Brianna, and that exact plan was ultimately carried out and led to the unfortunate death of Brianna. It'll now be up to the judge to decide what role Brianna's being trans played in the motive of the killers. Speaking to The Independent, Doyle explained why motive didn't feature in the prosecution of the case. All the prosecution can do is prosecute the evidence we have, and obviously it's not part of the prosecution case to label it one way or another. The evidence is there, the evidence of the messages is there, the evidence of the language used. The Crown doesn't have to prove a motive, and so it wasn't that we had to prove a particular motive to say it was motivated by hostility to a transgender person or motivated by anything else. Once all the evidence has been heard, the convictions are recorded, the verdicts have been recorded, and the sentencing exercise takes place, that's the point of the court that the trial judge has to decide whether there is evidence before him or her in this case to show that actually this offence was motivated by hate, by hostility towards transgender. So it's not a case that we can label it as prosecutor as one thing or another. We prosecuted it as a murder and we presented the evidence that we found that the police had and put before the court. In her sentencing of the killers next February, the judge will decide whether transphobia was an aggravating factor in the murder. While both will receive life sentences, it may play a part in the judge's decision about the length of the minimum term each will have to serve before becoming eligible for release. Helena, this is obviously a hugely complex case involving bullying, involving child and adolescent mental health, and of course involving transphobia both in terms of the language used in relation to Brianna and also the context in which Brianna lived her tragically short life. How have you attempted to make sense of all of these different factors? I mean, once you've seen the kind of writings that the offenders engaged in, it was very clear to me that these just deeply unwell individuals, right? You don't write the kind of things, do the kind of meticulous planning as children that the people the convicted I guess the uh, the convicted murderers now uh, engaged in it's clear to me that you you it, there's something wrong in the head at that point I don't think you can I think given what we see as a, a broad range of potential targets and this kind of uh, odd fascination with murder this kind of disgusting fascination with murder where I think transphobia plays an element to this is the selecting of Brianna as a potential target, right? They were always going to kill somebody. But this, the kind of dehumanising language that they continually used about her, such phrasing like, I wonder if she'll scream like a boy or a girl when we kill her. That's the kind of words they used during their planning of the murder. These people clearly are transphobic, whether it's a motivating factor in 
selecting her as a target is what I think is relevant here because they were going to kill somebody. It's just who they were going to kill. And I think that given, again, as has been said, her vulnerable position, given the kind of climate that we have around trans people in this country at the moment, I think that, to me, looks likely as something that would have led them to selecting Brianna in the list of individuals that they could have chosen for the Surrenders Act. What I will say, though, is the gigantic, the mind-bending level of press hypocrisy around this issue. People like The Telegraph and The Times and GB News talk about how tragic it is when these are the exact same publications, the exact same institutions, creating a gigantic fear-mongering campaign about trans people, about children not even just socially transitioning. I don't believe, I'm not sure whether Brana was engaging in a kind of mental transition, but it was the important part was just socially transitioning was enough for her to be accepted by her peers within her school, within the, the, the group that she'd formed around her. And these same press institutions who continually drive this horrendous culture war, who are driving negative perceptions of trans people with what the Jolly Mom has calculated is around about 30 articles a day which are negative about trans people. For them to come out here and say, what a tragedy, what a sad loss of life we see here. And I'm like, you all played a part in the current culture around trans people at the moment. And I will not, I, they're in, they have no leg to stand on, zero leg to stand on in commenting on these matters and could quite should quite frankly stay out of it. Because they're minors, the names of the murderers of Brianna Jai have not been made public. But the judge in the case has decided that they will be named at their sentencing in February. That decision follows a request from the media. Giving her reasons for making their names public, the judge said this. The public will naturally wish to know the identities of the young people responsible as they seek to understand how children could do something so dreadful. There is a strong public interest in the full and unrestricted reporting of what is plainly an exceptional case. Continuing restrictions inhibits full and informed debate and restricts the full reporting of the case. Another factor in her decision was the age of the killers. Both will turn 18 in less than two years, at which point anonymity would be lifted anyway. The judge had to weigh the public interest in naming the killers against the arguments made by their lawyers in favour of retaining anonymity. Both of the teenagers are vulnerable. The boy has autism spectrum disorder and is non-verbal. The girl has traits of autism and ADHD, and the families of each are reported to have received death threats. Speaking after the trial, Brianna's mother made this plea on their behalf. Please have some empathy and compassion for the families of the young people convicted of this horrific crime. They too have lost a child, and they must live the rest of their lives knowing what their child has done. I can't imagine what reserves of compassion and empathy and resilience you have to have as a grieving mother to not only make room for understanding in your heart about the situation that the parents of your child's killers are going through, but to ask the public to keep that in their minds as well. Just a really extraordinary thing to do and to say. The judge in the Brianna Jai case has yet to consider whether transphobia played a role in her murderer's motives. But we do know that Britain is not an easy place to be trans. In 2023, hate crimes against transgender people hit a record high in England and Wales, increasing by 11% on the number recorded in 2022. 
And according to a Home Office report, part of that rise may be due to comments made in the media and by politicians. This week, the government published new guidance aimed at removing the safety of school for trans children. But the government isn't finished yet. The Times reports this. The Department for Education is carrying out a review into relationships, sex education and health guidance, which will be published in the new year. It is expected to confirm that gender identity is a contested view. Gillian Keegan, the Education Secretary, has been clear with schools that gender identity falls under their legal duty of political impartiality. As such, teachers will have to give appropriate context and set out opposing views. You might think, in the context of rising hate against trans people, the government should be encouraging schools to, I don't know, protect transgender children. You might think it should support schools to educate other children about transgender people, but no. Instead, teachers will now have to contest the identities of their trans peoples and invite other students to contest them too. The guidance published this week also says that schools don't have a general duty to allow students to change their gender identity. But leaked advice from the government's own lawyers seems to suggest that's not true. They've warned that, quote, There is a high risk of successful challenge to the guidance on the basis that this statement is misleading slash inaccurate. That's because, in some cases, schools will have an explicit legal duty under the Equalities Act. Helena, has the government accidentally culture wars itself into a difficult binding knot here? Quite the contrary. I think it's been very deliberate. They almost certainly know that something like this was bound to crop up. There are lawyers of advice in this, but I think this was already on their minds when they were creating legislation like this because they've never liked the Equality Act. They've always been looking for ways to undermine the Equalities Act, right? This idea of classical liberalism versus wokeism that, that underpins this idea of protected groups rather than just general protections, right? Ironic the, to be that the, the, kind of, the, the kind of people who go against trans rights in general, talk about sex-based rights, which actually don't really exist, don't even exist within the Equality Act. But I do believe that they are looking for this to become a high-profile fight, specifically over their desire to impact, to implement new rules that they want to see, and then to come up against the quote-unquote lefty lawyers. When's the last time we saw this? Well, very recently, with the Rwanda plan, and them deliberately instituting this in such a way so that they can lock horns with the European Convention on Human Rights and then use this as a way to agitate for leaving the kind of, or undermining things like the Human Rights Act, other things that they've clearly shown they wanted to replace. The, the Dominic Raabs of this world wanted to replace it with the UK Bill of Rights because he's someone who's on record as saying he doesn't even believe in the concept of human rights. So this is something I personally believe they have done very deliberately so that when it does come down to it, they'll be able to find some example of some parent who might have not had their child outed to them by a school, probably because of the fears of potential abuse. That's the reason why we have these safeguarding things in place and what was was there under the Equality Act and all these things like that, is to safeguard children against abusive parents. If they're not telling their parents they're transitioning, there's a reason for that. There's a reason why they've gone to their school first, not their parents. So outing can be very, very dangerous. But if it gets to the point in which a school has not brought in the parents when they believe that there is an issue of child safeguarding, suddenly it can become this new hit piece that they can put out across the right-wing media sphere of this parent just wanting to know about their child and being blocked by the schools, which was therefore blocked by the lefty lawyers fighting over the Equality Act. And then they can use that as their agitation point for 
trying to revoke it at some point in the future. It really reminds me of the way in which the homophobic moral panic of the 1980s informed education policy. So Thatcher introduces Section 28. It makes it um, illegal to be seen promoting homosexuality within schools, which effectively means that teachers are frightened to discuss homosexuality in any way within the context of education. So for students who either were or were perceived as gay, it meant that they had absolutely no support from their teachers when they experienced homophobic bullying. Because you can't say, well, this is a very controversial issue. The existence of gay people is very controversial and, and teachers shouldn't be wading into it. And also go, but teachers should be able to take action on bullying and explain why to children you shouldn't pick on someone because they're gay or you think they're gay or because they're trans or because you think they're trans, right? It, it creates an impossible bind where you go in the classroom, you have to be impartial on the idea of whether or not trans people are human and deserve rights. But in terms of how you conduct the pastoral element of your job, which is dealing with conflict, dealing with bullying, obviously you have to treat trans people as human, right? You're creating a confusing context for children. It's not the existence of trans people that's confusing for children. It's saying that you can have a kind of like two-tier system where in one you acknowledge that trans people are human and the other they're contestable and totally up for debate. Let's move on to our final story. Junior doctors are out on a three-day strike as they fight for pay restoration after 15 years of real terms pay cuts. As a result, Health Minister Victoria Atkins has been doing the media rounds. Speaking to the BBC, she explained how negotiations with the medics have been going. Within 24 hours of being appointed by the Prime Minister, I called the BMA in, all of the committees, uh, the chairs of the committees, to say to them, look, I would like us to work together. And uh, we have managed, through hard work and through compromise, to find uh, an offer that I hope will be accepted by consultants. Uh, and I've also, uh, we've managed to find a, a fair and reasonable settlement for special, specialty doctors as well. The last cohort is that of junior doctors or doctors in training, as I prefer to call them. Uh, and they, um, sadly, to my great disappointment, they walked out of our negotiations and then called these strikes. And so I have said time and time again that if they call off the strikes, uh, then I will be straight back round the negotiating table with them. That phrase, doctors in training, caused a bit of outrage on social media. But according to the BMA, they actually prefer it to junior doctor, which a spokesperson called, quote, infantilizing. Of course, Atkins wasn't using doctors in training to bestow more dignity on the medics on strike. She was perhaps using it to suggest they're not fully qualified, which is just outright false. But the storm over nomenclature meant that a lot of people missed another point of Atkins's account, the bit where she said doctors had walked out of negotiations. The BMA has now responded to that, saying this. Throughout negotiations with the government, we had a mutually agreed deadline for them to make a credible offer. This deadline passed and we were therefore forced to call strikes. We did not walk away from negotiations and we are happy to talk to Ms Atkins at any time. It is the government's insistence that they will not talk while strikes are scheduled that is blocking progress and wasting unnecessary time. 
we appealed directly to Ms. Atkins and the government to drop this precondition and get back around the table. In another interview, Atkins appeared to be stoking rebellion amongst the junior doctors. The Junior Doctors Committee decided the date of their strikes. So they decided to do it three days uh, in the run-up to Christmas and they have also now picked the worst week in the NHS's calendar um, on which to be on strike. Now, there will be many, many doctors listening to this who feel deeply uncomfortable that their committee has called these strikes at this time. Uh, And I would encourage anyone who feels like that quietly um, to consider whether this committee is in fact um, representing their views. The BMA has now also responded to that claim too. This is what they say. We'd also ask Ms Atkins what evidence she has to suggest that we do not represent the profession and how many of England's 70,000 plus junior doctors she has spoken to recently. Members of JDC are working junior doctors, elected by their peers and are engaging with thousands of colleagues across the country on a daily basis, and the profession remains united in support. Ms Atkins may have forgotten that mandates are derived from democratic votes. In our February ballot, 98% voted for strike action on 77% turnout. This mandate was reconfirmed in August when 7,000 more junior doctors voted yes than they had in February. And compared to last December, we now have 15,000 more junior doctor members in England. Ms Atkins may have forgotten that mandates are derived from democratic votes. That's a reminder likely to chill the bones of every Tory MP this Christmas. Helena, the government had been hoping to quell industrial action in the NHS with pay deals for nurses and for consultants. So why are they so determined to piss off junior doctors? Well, the thing is, is that the NHS is a huge issue for voters amongst every single age group. It ranks in the top top three issues looking into the next election about whether they'll which party they'll support. And of course, massively failing for the Conservative Party as they have continually been shown to be the party that cannot be trusted uh, with the NHS. Speaking of trust, doctors and medical staff are among the most trusted professions in the country. Doctors rank the highest on that metric and politicians and journalists rank the lowest. Yeah, I don't want to know where journalists sit. I don't want to (laughs) know. Exactly. But then on, but with regards to that, it means that you really and truly, unless they find a scapegoat for the NHS failures, they have no defence for the position that they've got the NHS into, right? People are already realising that you can't blame the pandemic when waiting lists were already rising before the pandemic. And whilst, you know, some parts of the other NHS have accepted pay deals, they've accepted pay deals around what has already been offered to junior doctors, although junior doctors have had a worse pay decrease in real terms in these other professions, which is why they're asking for more. It's why they start at 35% for pay restoration and nurses only started with 25%. Also worth remembering that the nurses deal was only closed for the agenda for change pay deal because Unison tried to get, and the RCN tried to, they ratified essentially the Conservative Party deal and endorsed it. So The nurses accepted it when I believe they shouldn't have done. They should have continued industrial action to try and get a better pay offer, which has undermined the negotiating position of other sectors of the NHS as well. But by trying to create this difference between the accepted pay deal and the current demands from the junior doctors, you always get this 
term militancy thrown around. Now, I was watching Politics Live a couple of days ago with Navarra's Moilo de McLean on it. She did perform very well, as always. And just the idea that the junior doctors might want a pay rise that would be above inflation or meeting inflation or anything close to pay restoration is somehow evidence of their quote-unquote militancy. Therefore, they can't be trusted and they are activists rather than people seeking to, but not only to increase their own pay, but to save the NHS. That is what these strikes are about. They understand that the lack of recruitment and retention is a gigantic failure of the Conservative governments, given their squeeze on doctors' pay. And doctors aren't just striking because they want more pay, although that would be nice, so they don't have to move to another country that would offer them more, because we don't want to lose them, spend all that money educating them to lose them to another country. would be terrible. And so they're striking, saying that the future of the NHS depends on solving these recruitment and retention issues. And the government don't want to admit that. So by smearing the junior doctors as being the militant ones in comparison to everybody else. It not just undermines their negotiating position, it not just tries to paint them as the people who can be blamed for the, the NHS failures that we're seeing right now, and Sunak's been very clear about trying to paint them as the villain, causing the waiting, waiting lists to increase. But on top of that, it signals to other sectors of the economy that if they want to agitate for fair pay increases, pay restoration pay rises above inflation, then they are also militants too, who can therefore have all of their positions and all of their desires and uh, negotiating positions undermined. Might even call it a militant tendency, Helena. Um, thank you so much for joining me tonight. And I hope you're feeling a bit better from your food poisoning as well. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go straight to bed, I think. I need, I need to lie down. <laughs> I have that effect on everybody, straight to bed. Um, Thanks to all of you for tuning in. We actually forgot to say at the start of the show that this is the last Navara Live of the year, but, but, but it is not the last stream for us this year. So tomorrow I'll be back with Michael Walker for this month's Q&A. That'll be from 6pm and when it's done I can finally go on and he will leave. For now though, you've been watching Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.